Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the magazine by visiting classical-music.com or to our interactive iPad edition by visiting iTunes.com. BBC Music Magazine is now an official Apple Music curator and you can listen to our exclusive playlists by visiting applemusic.com slash bbcmm. So welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. If you didn't catch last month's episode, we've revamped things a bit with sections on the latest music news, a chat about the latest magazine, our recording of the month and discs that have piqued our interest over the last few weeks. I'm not, however, doing this alone. And with me in the studio, Deputy Editor Jeremy Pound, Reviews Editor Rebecca Franks and Editorial Assistant Freya Parr. Hello. Hello. Hi. And let's not forget that the April issue of the magazine with Claude Debussy on the cover is out now. So before we get going on this month's news, let's give you a taster of this month's orchestral choice, a remarkable recording on Decca of Smetna's Marvelous, performed by the Czech Philharmonic under the late and much-missed Yuzhi Belaslavek. So first the news. Freya, what's been happening in the classical music world of late? So the BBC Proms have announced um, that by 2022 they will reach a 50-50 balance on new Proms commissions. So there'll be a gender balance entirely on those that are given commissions. Um, And last year it was only 10 out of the 29 contemporary composers that were chosen were women. So actually this is quite a significant change. Um, inevitably, this has been <laughs> met with a little backlash, um, but I think the you know the quotas need to start somewhere, and actually this is a good place to start, and actually it will open the doors for more women composers to enter and gain these opportunities. I mean, there are plenty of women composers. I mean, it's not as if they'll be no. digging around trying to find any. And actually, the contemporary mm-hmm. music world is 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 very much sort of you know well populated by by equal. Uh, numbers of men and women, I feel that that, that classical music is actually leading the way in this respect. What is quite interesting is that some of the backlash, predictably enough, has come on social media, where you expect to see that sort of backlash. A little bit has come from publishers sort of protecting their own, realising that they've got very male-dominated lists of composers with them. Um, I can appreciate that to an extent, but maybe that is now the spur which is needed for the publishers, rather than protecting the composers they have, to actually think about their own gender balance. Mm. It also comes from ignorance, of course, people who actually write newspaper articles without actually looking at the classical music scene and realising that although classical music was dominated by men, I think now it's much more uh, an open field. Yeah, I think the impact as well of these um, quotas, I mean, there might be a sort of crude measure in some ways, but I think they're really important for being able to sort of create change across a whole industry because it does affect the composers, you know, the publishers, it does affect... um, well, it has a big, a wider impact than just that one concert. And actually, as well, it's that aspect of um, creating opportunity and it's, you know, it's making that equality of opportunity available. And I think that's just so important for giving people equal chances to, to 
to have their music played by these world-class orchestras in, in such, to such big audiences broadcast on Radio 3, that's a hugely valuable opportunity. Rebecca, talk to us about your story. Well, this is kind of an excuse to revisit a story which was just... It's quite intriguing, really. It's a story of, sort of gold and treasure. Um, <laughs> basically, there was this Broadwood piano um, that uh, was given to a school. And when the piano tuner came along, he was busy working away on the piano and basically discovered that there was a stash of gold sovereigns hidden away. They don't know who put them there, where they were meant to be, who they were meant to be for. Um, and it went through, um, you had to report it because it was a um, quite a large find of 913 gold sovereigns and half sovereigns from 1847 to 1915. So um, it had to be reported and was classified as treasure. Um, I think the tuner ended up getting a fee, a uh, sort of finder's fee and a reward. And so did uh, the community college. And anyway, now Saffron Walden Museum, which is where the, the piano was in, in Saffron Walden, uh, are trying to raise money to be able to buy part of that collection and put it in their museum and, and have that whole story. And it was just something rather, I just rather appealed, this, this discovery of all these golden coins in in a piano. What I quite enjoyed about this story is that the great British public, the moment they caught wind of this story, suddenly the whole world and his wife suddenly turned up and said, oh, yes, I used to own that piano. That was my piano. <laughs> 50 people. 50 people oh, suddenly decided they had at one point, one point had actually owned this piano and most were dismissed instantly. Yeah. I also quite like that it managed to date it between, well, they haven't dated it that accurately, but between 1926 and 46 because some of it was wrapped in cardboard with an advert for shredded wheat. <laughs> Just sort of like that funny detail. <laughs> We're talking of cereals, actually, the only uh, thing I found inside an instrument in the organ at university was an old cornflake packet. Um, uh, it must be, must be a trend. It was, well, it, was, it was propping up one of the pipes, actually. So, uh, so but that's, I don't think uh, a museum is going to step forward and um, offer to no. put that on display. Well, actually, it makes me think, you know, violinists often have interesting things in their violin cases because they've got space to, yeah. you know... Gets to put, yeah, we're mm. quite lucky looking in violin in this case to see what they keep Can't in there. <laughs> yes, I think it's where people sort of store their valuable jewellery, perhaps, isn't it? Mm. So, you yeah. know, um, until they get it stolen. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so before I talk about my story, let's have a bit more music. Uh, so we're going to start with, and this is a bit of a clue, although um, it's quite an obscure clue, but it's Britain's Overture, Building of the House. <laughs> So that was Benjamin Britten's overture, The Building of the House, written uh, for the opening of Snape Maltings. Uh, and ties in rather well with um, the story I've got, which is the building of a brand new uh, recital concert hall in Edinburgh. Uh, the plans, the detailed drawings of which have just been released. Uh, it's very exciting, actually, because it's one of a plethora of new projects, restored projects, projects in the pipeline, that really do, I think, uh, sort of inject a huge amount of excitement in the classical music world. You know, people who don't really uh, find themselves part of the scene think, oh, classical music, you know, is it a dying art? Well, 
Of course not, because so many uh, orchestras, so many communities, businesses are building new venues. Uh, orchestras have new rehearsal spaces. People have many more places to go. It's yeah, it's it, it's it's a it's a it's a good news story. And by looks of the drawings of the the the. Um, new concert hall in Edinburgh, which isn't going to be in St Andrew's Square. It looks to be a marvellous sort of 360-degree uh, concert hall. People can sit around and see the orchestra at all angles. It looks very intimate um, and should be a marvellous uh, rehearsal space too. Yeah, it's, um, it's, they say that if you build concert halls, nice-looking concert halls, iconic buildings, the actual effect of that goes well beyond the music going public. Mm. It's an, it's an age-old theory, but it's, it's true, is that if you have a nice building, it often revitalizes the area around it creates a point of interest so it's not so people say oh you're spending money towards you know public money towards a fairly elite group not at all mm. it's actually goes much further than that well look what hamburg did with the elbe philharmonie they created public spaces as well so there's this really attractive view out over the harbor you know, it's a really exciting place to be and then you know you'd only have to step a few yards and you're in the foyer of a concert hall we're actually talking of saffron walden earlier i mean they've got their new concert hall yeah. attached to the state school there which wasn't publicly funded that was uh, an anonymous donor who's given the money for that but they've read, made that a real destination actually one of their big points was that they've tried to make it near a motorway near um train line and make act they do um like a minibus between the station and, and that kind of thing to make it really accessible and they've got lots of parking you know they've really thought about how to make it a destination as mm. you say Jeremy and the Sage Gateshead Bridgewater Hall are both brilliant examples of buildings which are now focal points in areas which actually used to be a little bit mm. bit shabby that's great because you can just wander if you're just wandering around the river up there you can just have a wander through mm. the Sage what I like look about this concert hall from the artist impressions is the fact that it goes the whole way around it's 360 which actually kind of breaks down that concept of the popping the artist on a pedestal and everyone kind of sitting below and watching sort of it's very separate whereas this is much more sort of dynamic also provides quite a few opportunities for different performance so literally mediums. performing in the round as yeah. That's what I've always liked about actually St George's here, a bit closer to home, Bristol, which is mm. undergoing its own sort of little revamp. You know, there's those balconies either side that stretch all the way towards the end of the yeah. stage and people can sort of lean over and Yeah, you always really see people get, leaning over to the performers, don't yes. they? Have... Especially with pianists, you know, yeah. you get a really good bird's eye view of, yeah. of these wonderful pianists playing. Um, and, um, you know, as you were saying, Jeremy, that concerts need to be much more focal point communities. I think, you know, what St George's is doing, as many are doing, is creating a good cafe, a great cloakroom, you know, a bar, a place, a bit more space where people can can relax before and sort of, you know, breathe in the atmosphere afterwards. And I think it's a really valuable part of, of concert going. Jeremy, let's move on to yours. Right, my, my story is a, is a bit of a fun story, but it does have a little bit of a point I want to make at the end of it. Um, sports fans will recently be aware that um, the Super Bowl took place in at the end of... <laughs> January, it might have been the beginning of February, between the New England Patriots and the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, bear with me here. Um, a big supporter of the New England Patriots is the conductor Andres Nelsons, who is principal conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and Boston is actually the city in which the New England Patriots are based. Um, Philadelphia Eagles have a big fan in Yannick Nézé-Séguin, who is the principal conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Now, before the, the Super Bowl took place... Um, Andrus Nelson was very confident, had a nice picture of himself with his players dressed up in um, New England Patriots outfits because he was so confident they were going to win because basically the New England Patriots were the overwhelming favourites. 
Um, Yannick Neze-Seguin said, hold on a sec, I'm going to have a bet here, I don't believe you. And they had a bet which whichever conductor's side lost, that conductor would have to conduct a rehearsal in the in the team kit of the other team. So about a week later, we saw pictures of Andres Nelson's conducting his orchestra in a Philadelphia Eagles shirt. <laughs> now then, my point here, apart from the fact it's a quite amusing story, <laughs> it's just funny, yeah. is that it's actually quite nice. A lot of conductors are accused of being sort of not connected with their community, that they kind of, this is the age of the mm. sort of chief conductor who flies in for eight weeks, does his bit, disappears again. And actually these two, Andres Nelson's did this in Birmingham as well, they really immerse themselves in the local culture. And this is actually very important, that actually doing these photo shoots, showing that you're aware of what's going on beyond your concert hall, is actually quite important, and quite a few conductors could learn from that. I think, mm. but not, but not faking it. It's a fine line, though, isn't it, between sort of pretending you're interested in in the local, you know, team, uh, and actually being interested in the local team, because you know, so so it could easily fall flat on its face. Mm. So conductors could do well to cultivate interests. Well, the funny really. thing is, old old Vasily Petrenko up in Liverpool, he he was very canny because he was so nervous about irritating either Liverpool supporters or Everton supporters by choosing the wrong one <laughs> that he actually said that he supported Tranmere Rovers, which is a smaller side from across the river. And that way, he didn't irritate anyone. So. That's very good. <laughs> I think they still have some of that warmth up in Birmingham now that Mirga Grajanin Tetila's there as well. Yeah. I went to a concert um, part of their Debussy festival, and at the end, she just kind of turned around to the the um the audience, and she's just sort of went, see you in the morning because it was a sort of weekend long <laughs> festival. And you can just really feel, you know, when you talk to people in the audience, they really want to come and see her. They really want to come and see the players. You know, there's a real warmth there that I think sounds like that's sort of mm. being cultivated by Andres Nelson's and then she's doing it as well. well I think the CBSO have been very good at actually getting their conductors to do that because mm. Andres Nelson's I know had a, an intimate knowledge of Birmingham's best curry houses. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. <laughs> yes, you, you generally find there are some orchestras that are much better at making their conductors heroes and mm. some that simply sort of shy away from that and think that everyone's going to find it a bit twee, I suppose. But Birmingham does it so well it, 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 because yeah. Symphony Hall is a very sort of democratic place. It's at the, in the heart of the city. It, it doesn't sort of... It's not overwhelming in its sort of this is a concert hall. It's very much a place where... You know, again, like um, hopefully the new Scottish venue is going to be something that welcomes people. Mm-hmm. And just returning to the original story, in our April issue, you can see pictures of Andrews Nelson's in both his pre-bet New England Patriot shirt <laughs> and his post-bet Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles shirt. So. Yes, yeah, on page 13 <laughs> and page 14. So that brings us to the end of this month's news. Uh, let's move on to the April issue. And on the cover is Claude Debussy. So before we discuss that, let's hear a track from a new Rato recording. Uh, it's a movement from the Sonata for flute, viola, and harp, and it's played by Emmanuel Pau, Jacques Cosset, and Marie Pierre Longlamet. <laughs> Freya, 
Talk to us about the couple of features that we've got in the magazine on Debussy. So we have two different features uh, exploring um, both his reception in England and also his general reception in the fact that he was able to achieve mass popularity um, amongst his audiences while also revolutionising the way that classical music was written in quite a radical way. Um, And the balance of this uh, was extremely successful and why I think he's had sort of ongoing success. With the exception of Pelias, um, which wasn't received initially all too well, um, artists love performing him, audiences love going to watch him. We actually talked to three different artists, Colin Matthews, Stephen Osborne and Claire Jones, who discussed why they love performing him and how he's received with their audiences. And they always, one of Claire specifically said that she always tried to put some of his music in her programmes because it always balances out so nicely. Um, and they all sort of talked about his improvisatory style. Um, they all said very different things, but all with like the same common theme and it would think is the magic ingredient in Debussy's writing, which... I mean, the, thing I, the thing I come away with, um, the message I come away with from reading those pieces is that Debussy just loved sound. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just in love with the whole idea, the whole aesthetic mm-hmm. of, of beauty and sound. You know, he really, there didn't seem to be a huge amount of sort of meaning, perhaps, of sort of conjuring up feelings, emotions, uh, scenarios mm-hmm. in, in this wonderful sort of mystical music. Also, yeah. while his contemporaries were sort of going quite out there with their compositions and it was all becoming very modernist and um, not necessarily that sort of listenable for the average audience. He was then returning to the really beautiful, um, very sort of melodic, memorable themes. But he was breaking harmonies apart. I mean, the conservatoire hated what he was doing. Mm. I mean, he he basically stuck two fingers up at the conservatoire. And and this was, you know, and and how many people were able to do that and yet be loved by the public? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's because he wrote things like Claire de Lune and then also things like Pelias and Melisande were actually actually so completely different. Mm. But So he's kind of written the things that the popular hits, but also the things that he really believed in, you know. Mm. To be fair with Pelias and Melisande, it was actually the the critics were sniffy and the public took it quite early. It wasn't wasn't a complete disaster when it started. But, you know, the the piano works, I mean, they're, they're so approachable both as a player and as a listener by a whole spectrum. Um, you know, you can tackle Debussy's works and, and get a huge amount of satisfaction. There's maximum sort of input and output. You know, you get a real reward from playing Debussy, mm. I feel. But then it also it goes up to the stuff that's really difficult as well. Of course, <laughs> so yes. Paul you know, Piano yeah, is kind of like bits of the hard. And but, yeah, the of course. And... But, you know, the, the, the arabesque and the, the girl with the flaxen hair, you know, these are, these are, are, these are pieces yeah. in the Gollywogs cakewalk and mm. the, these, are, these are pieces that can be tackled by, you know, Grade four, five, six. Yeah, so. and can be enjoyed by pretty much anyone, regardless of your knowledge of classical music, which I think is quite rare. Worth pointing out in the same issue, we also explore Roger Nichols explores how Debussy kind of had a, a great England, uh, sorry, had a great audience in England as well. And yes. How he kind of mm. how he fitted in nicely on this side of the. Of yeah, the he's got some great um, anecdotes and stories about it in that feature. Yes, I never knew that Debussy was a Shakespeare fan. Until no. Recently. Yeah. Didn't he want to do a King Lear, mm. King Lear opera? Yeah, he was quite. One of his he had quite an affiliation with England throughout his life, which I think is often overlooked because um, he's so sort of French in his approach. But actually, he was received exceptionally well here, and I think he had quite a fondness for um, the country as well. Yes, uh, he uh, uh, he. Well, he visited London. I think mm. it was eight times. Eight times, yeah. Um, and presumably came into contact with a huge number of musicians here. 
Um, and I just loved loved the fact that his music was was adored and, and loved, and, mm. and 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 he had a huge respect for British singers. Mm. So in fact, the the, the 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 people who sung his operas were the best, according to him, were in fact English or Scottish, in fact, rather than French, which I think is quite interesting. Mm. So let's talk about the cover disc while we're on the theme of Debussy and let's hear an extract from uh, Debussy's Chanson de Bilitis and La Flûte de Pont. So that was Ruby Hughes, uh, soprano, uh, accompanied by Joseph Middleton, um, in the first of Debussy's Chanson de Bilitis, La Flûte de Pont. This is a wonderful cover CD which has been recorded by four exceptional singers. So Ruby Hughes, as I've just mentioned, Kate Royal, Nicky Spence, Ashley Riches and Joseph Middleton on the piano. This has been recorded specially for our magazine. Um, in association with Leeds Leader. Um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful partnership of the songs of Mozart and the songs of Debussy. And although you might think that those two composers come at entirely opposite ends of the spectrum, in fact, they both are very sort of sensual and very exploratory and very symbolist in their approaches to death and love and night and evening. Um, and they make such sort of refreshing um, changes when you when you hear, uh, you know, some Debussy or then move into the Mozart. It's, it's a very uh, colourful and beautiful collection of music, which I hope you'll all enjoy it. So let's hear another extract from the CD. Uh, it's Mozart's Abend Empfindung, uh, sung by Kate Royal and, as I said before, accompanied by Joseph Middleton. Jeremy, let's move on to another feature in the magazine. It's about serialism. Uh, so what, what have we got to say about that, this issue? Well, basically, the tone of Bayard Northcott's piece is don't be afraid of serialism. Um, so often it has this sort of... It has this impact. It kind of sends fear down people's spines. They say, oh, this is only for the, the purist or the specialist. This isn't for me. Actually, when you actually listen to a lot of serialist music, you suddenly realise it is rather nice to listen to, such as this moment here from Berg's Violin Concerto.
So that was from the first movement of Berg's Violin Concerto, which is one of many examples of um, serialist works which Bayer Northcott kind of uses and points out that are actually fairly accessible when you actually give them a proper listen. Um, he, he starts off the piece by sort of pointing out how lots of works beyond what we consider as kind of being atonal and hard to listen to could actually be described as serialist, but then also describes how serialist, it's almost like a potted history of serialism, describes how serialism developed and how the various composers used it in their own different ways. And what's really interesting is just the range of composers who have included serialist techniques mm. in their music. You don't expect like Copeland and people like that. Mm. And also, um, you know, Mozart, Bach, you know, the early composers, you know, serialism is a, is a term that uh, I think, you know, it's become a very sort of grubby term in many people's ears, I think, but it's actually a, something that's been used for, for centuries. Um, it's not just a sort of a modernist weapon that has come to sort of hit people around the head with. It is actually sometimes used very beautifully and... and, 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 and I suppose those early works, though, it's kind of things you, you look at it and call it serialist in relation to what happened in the start of the 20th century. And, mm. and it, is, it is quite a formidable. If you start looking and going, oh, you know, how have they used the tone rolling, you know, this order of 12 notes they have to use in a certain order and you have to hear each one before, you know, before they can play the next one and you can turn it up, upside down. You can get so bogged down in the mathematics mm. and the analysis of it that you kind of think you can forget to actually listen to the music. Yes, you don't forget the aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. But actually the yeah. aesthetic can be extraordinary. I've been it caught. Be brilliant, yeah. I've been caught out by by um, 12-tone pieces so many times where I thought, oh, well, I'll listen to that. And then you go, wow. I remember a, a, a concert in Cologne once where I was actually there to... I was looking forward to Schubert, Schubert's Great C Major, but it was prefaced by some Webern. <laughs> and I came out raving about the Webern, which was just utterly magical. It depends how the serialism is used, because, mm. of course, Berg, as we heard there, really mixes the sense of romanticism with the serialism. Mm. I mean, it's a real yeah, hybrid, isn't it? Yeah, it's got some aspects in whereas, whereas Webern, in contrast, he's, he's delightfully spare, and that's what I love about it. It's a very sort of pure listening experience. I think that's where it works really well, because I think in some of Schoenberg's thing, where it, he kind of was going, well, this is my new way of composing, this is my new scale, this is my new kind of system of, not harmony, but to replace harmony. And then he sort of said, I'm going to compose as before, using dance forms, you know, all the old forms. But, you know, when stuff get when it all just piles up, it can just become such an overload. So that's where the Webern really works so well when it's And he's so always brief as Yeah, short, so if you really brief, don't like it, at least, it's over. You know, it's not going to take very long. Yes, the piano so. works and also the orchestral works. I mean, I heard them <laughs> performed by the Berlin Phil with Simon Rattle a few months back. Um, they must have performed them hundreds of times. And, as you, and you're right, they're, 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 sh they're very short. They're very efficient and spare, but makes them exceptionally beautiful. I mean, like looking at a, a, what you think, first of all, is a slightly odd work of art, then discovering that there is... It's just, just, just very plain, but very beautiful. I think Rebecca's right in when you said that um, we get bogged down with the formulas and the patterns and trying to sort of break that down. But actually, formulas and patterns and things like that have been used. They're age-old systems of writing music, so this is just another a version of it, really, isn't it? Yeah. Rebecca, we're going to move now on to the recording of the month. What is it in the April issue? It is a chamber disc from the violinist Patricia Kopachinskaya and the pianist Polina Leshenko. And it is their first disc together, actually. It's on the Alpha Classics label. And it really... well. Patricia Kopachinskaya describes this as a disc for they were kind of trying to find their musical world together, their continent, mm. you know, the music they wanted to play together, because 
I think they do quite different things. And Patricia Kopachinskaya loves modern music. She and she, she's done all sorts of different projects. She's always, you know, d- mm. doing very interesting things. Anyway, this is one of well, sort of two things about this disc. One, it's just fantastic playing. Just I don't think you can listen to it and not just be bowled over by the playing, their partnership, the detail, the liveliness of it, the musicality, just kind of the the daring. And then it's also one of those programmes that the more you look into it, the more you find. And I think it would actually just sort of came together by sort of serendipity almost, sort of instinct. And then you find all these different layers of, of meanings and connections. Let's so, let's hear an extract, actually, before we go on. OK, I yeah. I think we should hear the... Uh, is it the final movement from the Poulenc? Yes, Poulenc yeah, the final Sonata. Sonata, yeah. <laughs> Presto Tragico from Poulenc's Violin Sonata. And so on this disc, we have, yeah, sort of French and Hungarian music, uh, music by Poulenc, Bartok, Ravel, and Dochnyani. And it's just one of those, as I say, you kind of find the different influences, the gypsy influences in the French music, and then the sort of, you know, the French influences the other way around. And also, then you discover there were these two violinists kind of behind a few of the pieces, Jeanette Neveu and uh, Yeli Deranyi. And there's also this lovely tale of this remarkable concert in 1922 where Bartok was playing his first sonata and um, with Duranyi playing the violin and Ravel was turning the pages for Bartok and Poulenc was turning the pages for the violinist which just oh. <laughs> one of those concerts you think oh I wish I could have been there <laughs> so not? it's just a really yeah it's just a really really rewarding CD. I really love her refined unrefined the quality of her playing, this sort of sense that I mean, it's yes, it's it's brilliantly played, but there's this sense of sort of really going for it, mm. and mm. she's obviously very comfortable in the studio, and very comfortable with her um, musical partner, and uh, she just goes for it. And, yeah, and I don't think she does anything that she doesn't hundred percent believe in. No, mm. no, and it, and it's clear from from this that I mean, her other recordings are exactly exactly the same. You know, she really does put her heart and soul into it. She does not hold back. That's what I love about it. It's a great partnership as well. I hope they do more things together because I think they're so sort of grounded and very together and they're both on completely the same page. You can tell they just, it's very intuitive the way they play. And it's, yeah, it's such a vibrant disc, it really is. So now we move on to the first listen part of the podcast where each of us brings along a disc that has intrigued us over the past few weeks. So I'm going to kick off with a new recording by the pianist Julien Borcal, whose Chopin disc we raved about a few months ago. Well, this is his second recording, and it's a disc of Montpou and Ravel. So two uh, 20th century composers. Um, French, Ravel's being French and Montpou being Spanish, but both 
sort of originating from similar areas, Montpou being sort of a Catalan origin, Ravel being of the Basque region. So there's a real sort of connection, a sort of rusticness, a sense of wanting to, I don't know, conjure up the, the sort of beauty of the landscape in their music. Um, it's, it's the most beautiful pairing. You hear the sort of spareness of Montpou's writing. You hear the real descriptiveness of Ravel's. Um, let's hear some uh, Montpou. Uh, it's going to be uh, a track from his landscapes collection um, of uh, sort of miniatures, and this is the second movement. So this this disc is is, is marvellous um, because Julien Bocal uh, seems to have a sort of shimmering tone, a real depth of tone, um, and, and I love the sort of the characters he draws out. I mean, the, the playing is so clear, the ornamentation so sort of crystal crystalline. Um, it, it's wonderful playing. I don't know if any of you. There's the reason to this. I don't know if any of you drink either Grey Goose vodka or Jägermeister. <laughs> not often. No. Because not, this not recording often, no. was actually partly brought to you thanks to that because he Brockal recorded it in Tibet Rise, which is a concert hall in the middle of nowhere in Montana, and that concert hall and its vast range of twelve pianos are all funded by Peter and Kathy Halstead, who are the heirs to the Jägermeister and Grey Goose fortune, and they have spent a lot of money on building this lovely concert hall in an art park with all these pianos, and musicians love playing there. And to record in it's perfect, because there's nothing, literally nothing, for miles around other than sheep and eagles. <laughs> yes. And, and they're and, notoriously quiet. <laughs> and the quiet. piano that he recorded on used to be played by Horowitz, and Horowitz was um, famously very fond of pianos, very shallow touches and very light touches, mm. so that so many of that sort of filigree uh, writing could be brought to the fore very easily. Um, uh, and, and you can hear that in this recording, especially in the sonatine, which requires so much sort of detail, little sort of fiddly detail in the first movement. Peter Halstead, the owner of Tippett Rise, is a major pianophile, and there's a reason why he's got these 12. It's not just sort of building up a collection. Each piano is slightly different from the other, so that when pianists come to play there, they have a choice of which piano they want to do each, each piece on. So that's Julian Brockal's uh, disc of Montpou and Ravel, highly recommended. Um, Freya, what have you brought along? So I've bought um, a disc which, the name doesn't sell it, but actually the content is marvellous. It's called Ladies' Night. Terrible um, title. <laughs> not a good title. Um, let's just hope it was a translation problem. But it's performed by Thomas Albertus Inberger and Barbara Moser. And it was actually our chamber choice in the April issue, reviewed by Julian Haylock. Um, and it's basically a collection of works by female composers who are lesser known, but sort of unjustly so, um, and it's a few little miniatures sandwiched between some bigger works. And we are going to listen to the fourth movement of Amy Beach's Violin Sonata in A minor.
so that was the first movement of Amy Beecher's violin sonata in A minor. Um, very Forshak, I thought, actually. Yeah. Very sort of um, Eastern European in his outlook, considering she's an American composer, clearly had a huge sort of um, breadth to her influences. We recently did a piece on Florence Price, another American mm. female composer, and her, a lot of her music is very Vorjakian. He obviously mm. had a, an enormous influence on... Well, I think, it, I think it's also to do with the, the, sort of the folk songs. I mean, don't forget sort of Eastern folk songs, American spirituals, um, English folk songs. They, they all sound very similar because they're all of that origin. They're all mm. of that sort of, um, sort of... Yeah, they're all of that folk song pentatonic origin that they all mm. draw on. Um, I thought it was a really nicely balanced programme as well and just yeah. really well played and really, so really well, well recorded. Yeah. And that makes such a difference because getting these works out there with really good performances yeah. so that you can actually enjoy listening to them is mm. what starts to put, put get them into people's minds. Such clarity of sound, I thought. And I actually saw parallels with Florence Price as well because obviously they were around at the same time and they did a lot of these large-scale orchestral works and such vibrant music, the whole disc actually, but... Amy Beach's violin sonata was definitely my favourite. Um, well, well played, presumably. Mm. Very well played, yeah. Jeremy. I will forgive people if they haven't heard the composer I'm featuring here. It is Hjalmar Borgström, and this is his violin concerto in G major, the second movement thereof. That was played by Eldbjörg Hemsing, who is a young Norwegian violinist. Um, this is her first disc, and we actually featured her recently as a rising star in the magazine. Now, Borgström was a composer who was... Um, he was at his, at his kind of peak in the early 20th century, Norwegian composer. But the trouble for him was that he was composing in a very sort of late romantic style while the whole world around him was moving on. And as a result, he has kind of moved into obscurity. And mm. if you look him up on Wikipedia or whatever, you'll see very little about it. Well, there are hundreds of composers like that, yeah. though, aren't there? I mean, so many of them sort of, you know, their music is, is startlingly brilliant. And yet, Don't know not about quite them. so progressive. Well, quite rightly, Elbjörg Hemsing, who actually mentioned this in her piece for us, um, said she's championing his music. She thinks it's brilliant. And I'm going to actually let her have the kind of describe it, because she does it rather nicely about this, compo- this concerto. She says... It reminds me of where I come from, the rugged landscape of Valdres and Jotunheimen, where the surrounding mountains rise dramatically over the valleys, and the music makes me yearn for my roots. Which I think is actually a rather nice way of putting yeah. it. It's a beautiful concerto. Interesting pairing, though, with the <laughs> first <laughs> concerto by Shostakovich. I, I mean, it's um, I, I can't quite see the connection, but it is, I mean, blisteringly played, but... It's, it's slightly unconvincing. She says it's because it's the work which she kind of grew up with and because this is her first disc, I think it's, it's a sort of very personal. Choice, yeah. So you've got her the ge- geographical personality and then what she's learned. Mm. It doesn't quite work together <laughs> as a disc, if I'm being really honest. 
but but good on her for putting the Bergstrom first, first. rather than the Shostakovich first, absolutely. because the Bergstrom really stands on its own. And that's a real discovery. Yeah, yeah. Rebecca, what have you brought along? So I brought along a disc which quite literally caught my eye because it has the viola player Antoine Tamerstit sort of screaming or shouting, it looks like, on the, on the front cover. So it really stood out when I was opening opening my post. And it's a disc of the composer Jörg Wiedmann, who is a clarinetist and a composer. And it's a, the main work is the viola concerto that uh, Antoine Tamerstit uh, sort of asked him to write. And it's a fantastic piece of music. And it um, sort of uses his sense of theatre and drama so the, the viola player is actually moving around in the space and actually it would be really great to see this because I think you'd get mm. that dramatic element. Um, and then the disc also includes a selection of his 24 duos and then ends with the piece that I actually initially drew me to the disc which is the Hunt Quartet, which is third string quartet. And it might seem a bit perverse not to play a selection from uh, an extract from the viola concerto but this piece is just... Oh, it's full of drama and it's very funny. It starts off and you're going to hear kind of the quartet kind of whipping their bows through the air and basically the chase is then on and the cellist is the prey. So that was an extract from Jörg Widman's String Quartet, and it brings us to the end of this month's podcast. All details of all the discs mentioned can be found in the podcast description and on our website, which is at www.classical-music.com. So until next month, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this BBC Music Magazine podcast, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at classical-music.com or simply head to iTunes.